0: Elijah. Um, This was a really terrible time in the history of God's old covenant people. Um, The kingdom was torn asunder. Um, After David, King Solomon um, brought more ruin into the kingdom than Rehoboam. David's grandson was king. He brought more ruin into the kingdom. And What we're seeing today is a king named Ahab. Um, He is ruler over Israel. And throughout this time of division and idolatry and sin within the kingdom of Israel, God raised up different prophets to speak God's word, to confront the people, to confront the king even. Um, You're probably very familiar with guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are sort of the big guys who wrote prophetic books in the Bible. Um, But there are also other prophets who didn't write a book, but nevertheless are recorded in Israel's history, and one of those is Elijah. Elijah doesn't have any written records that we're aware of, but there are written records about his life, and that's what we're looking at today and the next several weeks. First Kings chapters 17 through 19 is what this sermon series is covering. Um, 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah sort of appears out of nowhere. We don't get really any background on who he is or where he's from or what he's all about. He just sort of pops on the scene. Um, He confronts King Ahab, predicting a drought, predicting a famine that's going to come upon the land. And in chapter 18, Ahab is looking for Elijah. He wants to confront Elijah. He wants to find Elijah. And Ahab is going to deploy another prophet to help him find Elijah, his name's Obadiah. And so we're going to read about these three. Those are the main characters you kind of need to know, King Ahab and the two prophets Elijah and Obadiah. So let's read all 40 verses. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, and it said, "Go." Show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred of the prophets, and he hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water, to all the valleys, and perhaps we may find some grass and save the horses and mules and keep them alive and not lose some of the animals. So Ahab and Obadiah, they divided the land between them in order to pass through the land. Ahab went in one direction by himself looking for food, Obadiah went in another direction by himself looking for food. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized Elijah, and Obadiah fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? Elijah answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they say he is not here, Ahab would make them take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, because as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will whisk you away I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he's going to kill me. "'Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to Ahab today.'" So Obadiah went to meet King Ahab, and Obadiah told Ahab, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to Elijah, Is it you, Elijah, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, king, and you've troubled your father's house, David, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table." So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, "'How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, then follow him.'" And the people did not answer Elijah a word. Then Elijah said to the people, "'I, even I, am the only prophet left of the Lord.'" But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to the bull. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of the Lord your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of, the, of your God, but put no fire to the bull. And so the prophets of Baal took the bull that was given to them, "'And they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal "'from morning until noon, saying, "'O Baal, answer us!' "'But there was no voice, and no one answered. "'The prophets of Baal limped around the altar "'that they had made. "'At noon Elijah mocked them, saying, "'Cry aloud, for Baal is a god. "'Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, "'or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep "'and must be awakened.' And the prophets of Baal cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, the prophets of Baal raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to Elijah, and Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, Elijah built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And Elijah said, do it a second time, pour the water again. And they did it a second time. Elijah said, do it a third time, pour the water again. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and simply said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the soaking wet burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. The people seized the prophets of Baal, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered the prophets of Baal there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. What is the cost of getting fooled by a fake? When can you think of a time when you paid a price because you got fooled by a fake. Back in 1998, my family and I made a summer trip to Washington, D.C., and along with seeing all of the remarkable buildings and historical monuments, my brothers and I were fascinated by all of these street side salesmen. These guys were selling all sorts of knockoff items at amazingly reduced rates. We saw these guys all over the capital city as we walked around. We were from a small town in South Alabama, so we were not familiar with these sorts of street-side sales operations. But these guys, just right there on the street, were selling Rolex watches. They were selling Gucci purses and these other typically high-priced items. The one my brothers and I were most excited about were Oakley sunglasses. Not sure if those are still popular, but they were very cool in the mid-90s. So that's the souvenir we left Washington, D.C. with. Not a facsimile of the Constitution, not a snow globe with the White House in it, certainly not an educational toy from the Smithsonian, no. We went home with our fake Oakleys, or our Folkleys, as we (laughs) later called them. And what do you know? What do you know? A few months later, one of the lenses popped out of my pair and it wouldn't fit back in. On my brother's pair, the little hinge where the frame and the arm meet, it got mangled and all broken up from just operating it normally. It just started falling apart. And then the little nose pads between the lenses that sort of hold the frame onto your nose, those started to fall off as well. So we got what we paid for. We paid a cheap amount of money And we got a cheap product. The cost of getting fooled was about $20, probably for my dad. It's probably who paid for it. But what is the cost of getting fooled by a fake God? What is the impact on our lives if we devote ourselves to a cheap, imitation, false God? Well, as you can imagine, the stakes are much higher than getting fooled by a pair of fake sunglasses. So this morning, as we're continuing in this sermon series, 1 Kings 17 through 19, these are three chapters, as I said, that outline the ministry of Elijah. And we've sort of subtitled this series, Elijah, A Man Like Us. Because even though Elijah played a special role in the redemptive plan of God as a prophet, many of the obstacles he faced... Many of the temptations he felt are not too unlike the experiences we have in our everyday lives. But this morning is really the peak, it's really the high point of Elijah's ministry. We are going to witness an awesome triumph. We are going to witness a spectacular demonstration of God's power and God's presence. This chapter is a remarkable confirmation of who the true and living God really is. So you recall from chapter 17, Elijah has already accomplished some pretty amazing feats, right? He predicted the arrival of a drought. He miraculously multiplied food for a widow. He then later raised that widow's son from the dead. So Elijah's experienced some amazing things as God's prophet, but hardly anything beats what happens in today's text. It is this amazing confirmation of who the true and living God really is. But leading up to this climactic point in Elijah's ministry, leading up to this demonstration of who God really is at the end of the chapter, we learn leading up to that what I'm calling a theology of idolatry. In other words, we're learning what Scripture says about fake gods, and we're learning how committing ourselves to fake gods impacts our lives. First, we're going to learn that idols corrupt our lives. Idols corrupt our lives. So you remember from the start of chapter 17, Elijah is first introduced. He's making his prediction of a coming drought and famine upon the land of God's people, well, you remember that Elijah makes this prediction to King Ahab, and we know about Ahab going back another chapter to 1 Kings chapter 16, that Ahab was an ungodly king. In fact, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, that Ahab, quote, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than all the kings who were before him. And verse 32 says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And the main way Ahab did evil, the main way he provoked the Lord to anger was his idolatry. Ahab married a foreign princess named Jezebel whose people worshiped a false god named Baal. And Ahab built an altar of worship to Baal. Baal was supposedly the fertility god, the life-giving god who blessed his worshipers with healthy children and with abundant crops. That's what we learn about Ahab in chapter 16. Well, then right at the start of chapter 17, Elijah appears on the scene and as we said, he tells King Ahab that there's going to be a famine upon the land of God's people. And for Elijah to make a prediction of famine and drought during Ahab's reign was an indictment upon Ahab, and it was an indictment upon God's people who Ahab was ruling at the time. So you think back to the founding documents of Israel, God's people, the law of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 through 17, God says to His people through Moses, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn and serve other gods and worship them then the anger of the lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the lord is giving you so you see as the law of moses warned us about centuries earlier king ahab and god's people with him they had turned to other gods, in this case the pretend fertility god Baal. So for Ahab to receive the prediction of drought and famine at the start of sef- chapter 17, it was a chance for him to repent. For him to receive the prediction of coming drought, it was a warning that he and all of God's people needed to smash the idols in their lives or they would face God's justice. But look at what we see unfold over the course of these verses in chapter 18. Does King Ahab busy himself with repentance? Does King Ahab concern himself with refocusing his life and the life of his people around God? No. Instead, he busies himself with simply trying to search the land for more food. Ahab calls on another of God's prophets, Obadiah, but Ahab does not confess his idolatry to Obadiah. Ahab does not seek out Obadiah for another word from the Lord or for Obadiah to intercede on his behalf. No, you see there in chapter 18 verses 5 and 6, Ahab calls on Obadiah and his plan is that they split the land between them to start searching the land so that, quote, perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules and keep them alive and not lose some of the animals. So King Ahab is more worried about horses for his military and mules for his farm than he is the spiritual condition of his people. This reminds me of some pastors who care more about the size of their congregations and the size of their church's budget than they care about the spiritual maturity of their people. It's because Ahab worships a fake god that he now has corrupt priorities as a leader. Idols corrupt our lives. Well, as the narrative continues in chapter 18, we follow Obadiah on his search through the land for food, and Obadiah doesn't find food, but he does find Elijah. And Elijah tells Obadiah, go back to King Ahab and tell Ahab that you found me. Obadiah then says, are you trying to get me killed, man? Once Ahab finds out that you're alive in the land, he's going to kill me. Because Ahab had apparently already been searching for Elijah everywhere, and everywhere that he couldn't find Elijah, he made them swear that Elijah wasn't there. And Obadiah explains to Elijah that if he goes and tells Ahab that he found Elijah, then the Spirit of God surely is going to come and whisk Elijah away to safety before Ahab can arrive. So Ahab is going to look like an idiot and face Ahab's wrath when they both show up and Elijah's gone. Furthermore, Obadiah explains (laughs) that he's already been part of a secret protection plot against Ahab's plans. Obadiah mentions that Ahab's wife, Jezebel, killed numerous prophets and that Obadiah had hidden a hundred prophets of the Lord in caves safe from Jezebel's fury. So again, I want you to think about this. Jezebel and Ahab are desperate to find grass and grazing pasture to save their horses and mules, but they are also at the same time intent on killing God's prophets. They want to save their animals, and they want to destroy God's prophets. That's how corrupt their priorities are. That's how corrupt their lives are, and it's because they worship a fake God. Eventually, Elijah convinces Obadiah to go tell Ahab that he found Elijah, and Ahab then goes out to meet Elijah. Ahab confronts Elijah and says in verse 17, "'Is it you, Elijah, you troubler of Israel?' But Elijah responds to the king, he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. You have brought trouble upon your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed after the Baals. So Elijah, the prophet here, he condemns King Ahab saying that Ahab has forsaken the commandments of God because he worships another god. In other words, because of his idol, because of his false god, Baal, Ahab's life is free from the righteous influence of God's commandments. And Ahab is left only to the corrupting influence of his false gods. Idols corrupt our lives. And Ahab is exhibit A of this truth. Let me give you another example. In 2019... Allegations came to the surface that dozens and dozens of super wealthy people, including many well-known celebrities, they had falsified documents, cheated on standardized tests, and bribed school administrators in order to get into the elite colleges of their choice, in order to get their children into the elite colleges of their choice. This is known as the college admissions scandal or the Varsity Blues scandal, Netflix recently made a documentary about it. The most famous celebrity that was involved and eventually convicted was Lori Laughlin, who played Sweet Aunt Becky from Full House. Man, just didn't seem right to see Aunt Becky behind bars. But. but let's think about what happened to each one of these parents. Think about what happened to each one of these families who got caught up in this. They were relatively good people. They were not people with a criminal history. They were not people with shady reputation. So what happened? Well, they so idolized the status and prestige that comes with getting into certain colleges that they were willing to compromise their morals. Let me say that again. They were so idolizing status and prestige that when it came to getting into certain colleges, they were willing to compromise their morals. Getting into USC, getting into Georgetown, that comes with rank and clout and status, and these families idolized that sort of thing. They worshiped the false god of status and influence, and so their lives were corrupted through lying and cheating. And bribery. An NBC News article about the case states that, quote, some of the parents spent between two hundred thousand to six and a half million dollars to ensure that their children received guaranteed admission at the schools of their choice. That's how large these bribes were, up to six and a half million dollars are. That's how large their sacrifices were to their false gods. Because false gods will take whatever you will give them and more. That same article quotes John Bonavolonta, the lead FBI agent in charge of the investigation. He said, quote, the actions of these parents were without a doubt insidious, selfish, and shameful. And the same is very often true for you and me. Our selfish actions, the shameful things we do, they very often stem from our false gods. So if you worship money, your life will be corrupted by greed and you will lack generosity. If you worship power, your life will be corrupted by a willingness to run over other people and take advantage of other people in order to get as much power as you can. If you worship success, then your life will be corrupted by being a workaholic, and you'll be willing to sacrifice relationships with your children, with your friends, because, hey, the God of success is telling me to work more. The God of success is telling me to stay at the office. If you worship your home country, if you worship your nation, then your life will be corrupted by a willingness to support your country doing harmful things to those abroad and even to its own citizens so that we prosper as a nation no matter what. You see, it's easy. It's easy for us to sit in judgment of Ahab here, idolater that he is. He worships Baal, a false god. And his life becomes corrupted with murderous rage, terrible priorities, and compromise of all sorts. It's easy for us to sit in judgment of Ahab and Aunt Becky. But the truth is we all have idols in our lives. And those idols corrupt us just as easily as Baal did Ahab. So what in your life is stealing your affection from the true God? What is the thing in your life that takes the place of the Lord in your life? What is the object of worship in your life that is also corrupting your life? I ask these questions, friends, because the first step towards repenting of your idols is becoming aware of your idols and then surrendering them to God and let them burn in the presence of his holy justice. That's my call to you this morning, so that through this story, we not only see the characters here, but we see ourselves. What is stealing your affection from the living God? What is taking the place of the Lord in your life? I urge you, see those things for what they are and surrender them before the throne of God. But Ahab is not ready to do that. He is still persisting in his rebellion against God and his commitment to Baal. So in verse 19, Elijah calls for a showdown. He calls on King Ahab to bring to Mount Carmel all 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets who belong to Jezebel. And Elijah also tells Ahab to bring all the people of Israel because Elijah wants everyone to witness this matchup between the Lord and Baal. And what we're going to learn next is idols have no life. Idols corrupt our lives, but idols have no life in and of themselves. So Ahab does just as Elijah requested. Ahab has confidence that Baal will show up and defeat Elijah and his God. So the 450 prophets of Baal come, Jezebel's 400 prophets come, all the people of Israel come as well to witness this showdown. And in verse 21, Elijah makes clear exactly why all the people are there. He says, how long, people? How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So Elijah wants the people to make a decision. He wants the people to choose a side. No more of this syncretism, blending Israel's religion with pagan religion. Because the central claim of Israel's founding documents comes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's famously referred to as the Shema. The verse reads, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, according to the Israelite religion, according to the law of Moses, Israel's God is one and he is the only one. And he does not share his divinity with any other gods. He does not share his divinity with any other creatures. That's why Judaism and Christianity are known as monotheistic religions, because there's one God as opposed to polytheistic religions in which there can be many gods who are worthy of worship. Elijah knows this. He knows Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and he's calling the people back. He's calling Ahab back to faithfulness. Back to faithfulness to the God of their fathers. Then in verse 23 through 25, Elijah lays out the terms of the contest. He says that he will take a bull for sacrifice, and the worshipers of Baal will take a bull for sacrifice. Each bull will be put on their respective altars, and whoever's God answers by fire, that is, whoever's God strikes their sacrifice with fire, will be deemed the winner. That's the terms of the showdown. So the worshipers of Baal go first. They get their bull on the altar, and then in verse 26, they start calling upon the name of Baal. They start crying out to their God, oh, Baal, answer us. They want Baal to show himself to be the true God. They want Baal to show up Elijah and prove to the people that Baal is worthy of worship. So it says they started with this in the morning, and then 9 a.m. rolls around. And then 10 a.m. rolls around, and then 11 a.m. rolls around, and then noon rolls around. And now in verse 26, it tells us they are limping around the altar. By noon, they are losing steam because verse 26 also tells us, quote, there was no voice and no one answered their prayers. So Baal doesn't respond. Baal gives no answer. Then in verse 27, this is the kind of guy Elijah is. Elijah mocks the worshipers of Baal. He says to them, cry aloud, for Baal is a god. And then he gives some reasons as to why maybe Baal hasn't answered them yet. He says maybe Baal is just off musing. In other words, maybe maybe he's off having some alone time, some reflection time, some quiet time to himself. Or maybe Baal is on a journey, and you're just going to have to leave a voicemail until he returns. Sorry, guys. Elijah says maybe Baal is asleep, maybe he's taking a nap from all of his God duties and you guys just need to yell louder, or maybe wake him up. Elijah even says maybe Baal is relieving himself. You know how it is, you're on the john and then someone knocks on the front door and you can't answer them, right? Now I tell Christian clean jokes, right? It's Elijah here who's doing the potty humor, right? It's the, it's the Bible, I tell clean stuff. But despite being mocked like this, the worshipers of Baal continue calling out to their God. We're told in verse 29 that as noon passed, as midday passed, they raved on calling to Baal, but there was no voice, quote, no one answered, no one paid attention to them. Baal was supposed to be the fertility God, the God who gives life, but he himself doesn't even have life. He can't hear, he can't speak, he can't help his worshipers. And the same is true for all of our false gods. Idols have no life. In 1989, the movie Weekend at Bernie's was released. And if you haven't seen this movie, then you must know that it is one of the best performances of physical comedy ever. It's hilarious and a lot of fun. So the story starts with these two young men, these two hot businessmen who are headed to the beach for a weekend of fun at their friend and boss, Bernie's house. But when they get to the house, they find out that Bernie has died. He is slumped over dead in his desk chair. But the two guys don't want to be implicated in his death, and they don't want to waste their weekend of fun, so they spend the entire weekend doing everything they would have normally done on a party weekend, dragging along Bernie's dead body, pretending that he's alive. And as I said, it's an amazing feat of physical comedy. The creators of the movie were able to find all these hilarious interactions that a dead person could have and not actually be discovered as dead. And I thought about this movie as I was thinking about this point, Idols Have No Life. Because here, Bale is just like Bernie. All of his followers think that he's alive. And in many ways, it appears as though Baal would be alive. He has all these followers. They've built him all these amazing statues. They sacrifice to him. They pray to him. But despite appearances, just like Bernie, Baal is dead. He has no life. And the same is true for all of our idols. They are lifeless. We cry out to them, we pray to them, we sacrifice to them, but they don't answer us. They pay us no attention because they can't. They're not real. They are false gods. My first experience with the emptiness and lifelessness of idols was with my football career. I don't look like much of an athlete now, but 30 to 40 pounds ago, 30, 40 to pounds of muscle ago, I was a pretty good ball player. And growing up, I gave my life to playing ball. Just like we talk about giving our heart to Jesus, I gave my heart to football. I was religiously devoted to it. Football was my God. It was going to be the thing that gave me acceptance from my friends. It was going to be the thing that gave me affirmation from my family. It was supposed to be my source, my joy, my security. But then the Lord started to give me glimpses. The Lord started to slowly open my eyes to the fact that this is all ultimately lifeless. And hear me, I'm not saying that football is a bad thing. Football is a good thing. The problem is that I made a good thing, a God thing, and then it became a bad thing. And the Lord started to slowly reveal this to me, that no matter how well I did at playing ball, it could never satisfy me like I wanted. It could never give me the abundant life that I wanted because it didn't have life in the first place. Bail, football, money, sex, power, whatever it is that you worship besides God, it has no life. False gods cannot hear, cannot speak, cannot respond when you cry out to them because they are lifeless. So as we develop our theology of idolatry through the lens of 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 30, first we learn that idols corrupt our lives. Next, we learn that idols have no life, but finally we learn that idols take our life. Idols take our life. There's one detail I skipped over previously in verse 29. When Baal's prophets are appealing to him, crying out to him, he won't respond, so they get desperate. They get desperate. And in order to get Baal's attention, verse 29 tells us that they, quote, cut themselves. They cut themselves with swords and lances and blood gushed out upon them. So somehow it was their thought that if they sacrificed themselves, if they poured out their blood, then, then Baal would be impressed, and then he would hear their prayers. So think about this, friends. The followers of Baal are mutilating themselves, destroying themselves for a God who isn't even there, a false God. Idols will corrupt your life and idols will take your life. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 4, King David writes, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So David says, when you abandon your commitment to the true God and start going after other gods, it will ultimately lead to misery upon misery. And that's exactly what we see In the lives of the prophets of Baal, their false God leads them to brutalize themselves. As we said before, idols have no life, but they will take your life. They will demand your soul. I'll share with you another example of this from my own life. I shared with you guys how I idolized my football career when I was younger, but the other area of life that I was devoted to was partying. My young heart longed for acceptance, connection, and love, and the way that I fulfilled those core desires was through partying, which also happened to include doing a lot of harm to myself. So in order to really engage in the partying scene and be celebrated by everyone there, I put a lot of substances into my body that were not good for me, physically or mentally. Giving my life to partying put me in potential legal trouble also. And after 10 years of living like this, before I became a believer, my body was addicted to these things, my mind was dependent upon these things, and I was a rack. Well, so it is with false gods. If you give your life to them, then they will for sure take your life from you and leave you in misery so how are your false gods taking life for you what sorrow have you caused yourself because you've devoted yourself to a fake god because for our idols enough is never enough They want all of you. They will suck your life dry and leave you as miserable as possible. As the saying goes, you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. As King David said it, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. So what has this looked like in your life? How have your false gods stolen from you the spiritual prosperity and the emotional security that God meant you to live with? Well, the response of this text is not just to understand idolatry, friends. The response this text demands is that we repent of our idolatry and turn to the living God who gives life. We see this truth powerfully illustrated in the verses that follow. In the previous verses, Baal failed to show up for his followers, and now it is the Lord's turn. So the narrative picks up in verse 30. After the prophets of Baal fail to get a reaction and response from Baal, after they find out Baal has no life, then Elijah calls the people to come near to him. He then builds an altar with the Lord's name on it. He has the people drench the altar. He tells them, pour water all over the bull. He has them pour so much water that it fills up the trench around the altar, creates a little moat. And then he prays. That's all that he does. Elijah doesn't do a special dance. He doesn't flail around and cry out loud. He doesn't go into a frenzy. He certainly doesn't cut himself or anything bizarre like that. He just prays. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that this people may know you, O Lord. Are God. And then it's explained that fire fell down from heaven, consuming the sacrifice, drying up all the water, and the people respond in verse 39 The Lord, He is God. And so what we're witnessing here is a confirmation through Elijah that the Lord is the only God who gives life. Baal has no life. He only corrupts life and takes life, but the Lord, the God of Israel, is the only truly life-giving God. But friends, as amazing as this story is, as amazing as this story is, the main way that this God gives life is not through the prophet of Elijah. And the main way that this God gives life is not through this altar here mentioned in Mount Carmel. No, the main way that God gives us life is the man Christ Jesus. And the main way that this God gives life is through the altar of Jesus' cross where he was sacrificed not on Mount Carmel but on Mount Calvary. In the same way that the bull on Mount Carmel was burned through with the fiery holiness of God's justice, so too Jesus, God's own son, experienced the full heat of God's holy wrath. Jesus died enduring God's wrath so that we could be forgiven of our idolatry, so that we could be freed from the power of idolatry in our lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so I call upon you now, church, repent of all your idols. Turn away from looking for life anywhere else except the life-giving God who is the man Christ Jesus. He is the only one who gives life, but He gives life in abundance and he will give it to you as you come to him in repentance and faith. I pray it would be so for you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's stand as we prepare to respond to God's word. And after a moment of reflection, I'll lead us in prayer.